Hi folks, happy Wednesday and welcome to Food for Thought. On this week's episode, we're speaking with a man who is one of few chefs who have cooked for an active US president and first lady in the White House. Chef Spike Mendelson was born in Montreal, but spent much of his life in the United States, growing up in what he calls a restaurant family. Prior to working with Seth Goldman at Eat the Change and Plant Burger, two powerful mission-based businesses that are making delicious plant-based foods more accessible with snack products and fast casual restaurant concepts, Chef Spike has opened numerous restaurants around the U.S., but namely in his home of Washington, D.C. Chef Spike has appeared on Bravo's Top Chef, Food Network's Iron Chef America, and is now playing a key role in helping to increase voter participation through food in the upcoming U.S. federal election. This is going to be a fun one. Let's dive in. Chef Spike, where does Food for Thought find you today? Uh, Food for Thought finds me in, in, in some of the most exciting times of my life right now. <laughs> uh, you know, I'm, I'm, uh, right now, I'm, I'm working on two different startups that are, are both uh, planet-based. It's kind of the term that we like to use instead of plant-based, we use planet-based. So, uh, you know, we launched uh, earlier this year a, uh, a plant burger uh, that focuses on plant-based uh, um, junk food, if you will, uh, America's favorite. And then uh, we're, we're launching a, um, a snack company, uh, a master brand called Eat the Change. Uh, and, and both of these companies are, you know, they're sister companies and they're both focused on, um, you know, uh, reducing the environmental footprint uh, as we know it. And uh uh, you know, kind of uh, addressing climate change. Awesome. So, so for the viewers, Plant Burger is, um, a, I want to say, a fast casual concept that you've launched, I believe, five locations now uh, within Whole Foods. And what's really fascinating about it is, is you're utilizing a byproduct of oyster mushrooms that normally is getting thrown in the garbage, I believe, but you're actually yes. making it the feature of your signature spicy chicken fungi sandwich. Can you tell us more? That's it. That's it. Yeah, absolutely. That's exactly right. So, so plant burger, you know, the idea of it was why, you know, why do not meat eaters not get to eat uh, America's favorite style of food, which is hamburgers, milkshakes, French fries, and all that deliciousness. So when I was introduced to Seth uh, and beyond burger uh, and tasted it for the first time, I was blown away. So, uh, you know, we kind of stayed connected and, and uh, you know, an opportunity presented itself in Whole Foods to, to launch this, this idea. So we launched in Silver Spring uh, Whole Foods uh, earlier uh, of this year. And now we're actually today, we'll be launching our, uh, our seventh store actually in Alexandria. So it's been a lots of rapid growth. But like you pointed out, one of the real cool things that, that we did is through the discovery of opening the restaurant, um, we had this we had this burger called the uh, um, the barbecue bacon cheeseburger, and uh, the bacon obviously since we're plant based was made out of shiitake mushrooms. Uh, and our group and our chefs, we always love visiting the farms and, and purveyors and the people we work with. So we had booked uh, you know a trip to. Uh, Phillips Farm in Pennsylvania, which actually Pennsylvania supplies 65% of the mushrooms across the United States. So, um, and uh, while we were on tour, they were showing us all these different varieties of mushrooms they were growing. And we came across this oyster mushroom that they were harvesting uh, for and to to package. Uh, But underneath the fresh harvest of flowers, if you will, there was this fruiting body basically uh, that was 
being thrown to compost, right, or waste at times. And uh, the lady there said, oh, sometimes I take these home and saute them and cook them up and they taste like chicken. Uh, and uh, a couple of the chefs and myself, we kind of looked at each other and, you know, that light bulb went out. And we're like, wait a second, what would you say? So uh, we were able to secure a, a case of them uh, and leave with a case from the mushroom farm. Uh, and my buddy Mike and I, we took them and basically tenderized them, seared them and seasoned them and then fried them. Uh, and they turned out having the exact same texture uh, and flavor of chicken, right? So it was, it was kind of blew our mind. And especially if you season the batter or you make a spicy one, you end up having this delicious chicken sandwich. And, uh, you know, it was kind of perfect timing because in the States we were having the, the battle of the fried chicken sandwich uh, uh, amongst all the, uh, the fast food restaurants. So for us, it was, it was kind of fun to be able to introduce a fried chicken sandwich that's all completely plant-based, but also a food rescue item uh, from the farm. So those are just, you know, part of the things that we try to do at Plant Burger is it, obviously even with the burger that we use, we use 95% less water for, for it to grow, 92% uh, less land. So, you know, it's, uh, it's really fun to be able to be creative with these, with these different ingredients in that way. Definitely. It sounds great. I'm excited for the border to open up whenever it does so I can try one of these <laughs> uh, sandwiches. So Absolutely. I'm curious, um, you know, you've teamed up with Seth Goldman. For those who don't know, he's the founder of Honest Tea. Um, he's now the chairman of the Beyond Meat Board and you've teamed up with him. How did you and Seth originally cross paths? Yeah, well, you know, I, I crossed paths with Honest Tea long, long time ago and I became a huge fan of their product. Um, but I was, was lucky enough to be on a George Washington panel with Seth. Uh, and uh, the subject of the panel was basically, um, you know, uh, uh, food politics, right? Uh, and plant-based foods and, and the, the effects on the environment. And uh, he had brought me a nice, cute little cooler full of Beyond Burgers. And, you know, he kind of slipped the number my, under my chair at the beginning of the panel. He's like, hey, I brought you a little treat. I heard you're the Burger King. We'd love to know what you think about these, right? So I don't think Seth knew at the time that I actually had a vegan wife at home and we always struggled around like burger night because I'm, I am a burger guy. I love burgers, but black bean burgers just don't do it, you know? So uh, so when we cooked these up, you know, seeing the smile uh, on, on my mom, on, on my, my wife's face uh, and, you know, and them being just absolutely delicious and texturally pleasing uh, I thought there was a home run there so I reached back out to Seth simply and started working with with Beyond Meat to develop rest, recipes and video content I actually launched their um, Beyond Sausage in Boulder at the Boulder Whole Foods when that first hit the market and uh, you know and then you know as things progressed Beyond Meat IPO'd and and Seth was kind of looking for his next venture uh, and you know he kind of brought up the opportunity he's like hey you know this 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 plant-based burger shop you've been telling me about, uh, you know, are you interested in doing it with Whole Foods? And I said, absolutely, Seth, let's, let's do it. And uh, one of the things about the Goldman family, there's three sons and, and obviously uh, Julie Farkas, which is also a partner with Seth, his wife, uh, is that they love, they love this. They always love burgers. They grew up eating them a little bit, right? They have like a, a great story with their grandfather where he used to go to all these fast food restaurants. Uh, but then when they became vegan and plant-based, that part of their life kind of got eliminated right away. So they love that we're doing this concept and they, it's, it's just, it's been a great ride with them. So. 
Very cool. So you mentioned, you know, this is one of the most interesting times of your life. And one of the things you recently came out with was your pl- the plant your vote campaign to encourage voter participation in the U.S. Uh, considering we're, you know, less than two weeks away from the you know big election. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? Absolutely. You know, so it, it became very evident to, evident to me about 10 years ago when I went through a policy chef boot camp that you know, chefs had voices, and uh, especially when the Obama administration was, uh, you know, at the White House in 2008, it's, it's really when I started my career in in, um, in, in D.C., and I was immediately kind of folded into uh, the First Lady's initiatives, uh, which is to better school lunches and, uh, and, and so forth. So for me, you know, chefs have a powerful voice, especially when it comes to our farm bill and our, our local food culture. Um, and I just couldn't sit back and, and not try to participate or inspire people, uh, to vote, you know, and I think there was so much going on this year in, in this election year, like whether it was COVID, the pandemic, or just the brass tacks politics that, that have consumed us. Right. And we're so divided that we're forget, you know, i I was nervous that a lot of people were forgetting to register, or to even remember to vote, right? Like we've seen that happen so many times in the past. And maybe that's kind of why we ended up where we are now in the States. But but the idea was is to use the platform of chefs, have a fun challenge, right? We made it plant-based because that's not easy for everybody, right? To give them like a little bit of a challenge and to use chefs network across the, the country in a you know, bipartisan way to inspire people to vote. And, you know, for us, chefs, we're, we're used to bribing people with food and recipes to get what we want, right? So I figured <laughs> if every chef posts a recipe and, and, and does a little bit of a rallying cry uh, for voting, that might take off. And the cool thing is, is like I've been over, you know, overwhelmed with, with, with how many people have participated. We have at least over 100 chefs right now and counting. It grows every day by at least 10, 15 chefs that have been posting. We have this website that you can visit, which is www.plantthevotechallenge.com. And you could see all these awesome recipes. Like there's really, really great recipes there, which is great and fun. And it's a reminder to vote. So, uh, and in fact, Mike, it actually crossed borders to Canada just last week. We, we have about a dozen Canadian chefs helping oh, really? uh, the American culture uh, uh, to the polls right now. So uh, it's been fun. Very cool. And I don't know if viewers know this, but you were actually born in Canada. I am. I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm from Montreal town of Mount Royal, uh, you know, still, still got my Canadian citizenship and I, I can't wait till the border opens. I was hoping to spend Christmas there this year. So we'll see if that happens or not. Absolutely. So with, with COVID-19, it's obviously wreaked havoc on the food service and restaurant industry, you know, as it's been as hard hit as any, do you see some of the culinary talent from, you know, traditional restaurant space, migrating to the CPG space? I mean, you've been always somebody that's kind of flexed between the two, but with Eat the Change, you know, you're, you're pivoting. Are you seeing other, you know, chef colleagues of you are doing the same? Absolutely. I've, I've, um, I've, I've definitely done a, a big pivot uh, personally. And, and that's kind of what t- is kind of the most exciting, why I said it's the most exciting time for me, because I've always really dreamt of having my mark in, 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 in the grocery store in some version, but I never want to like just throw my face on a can of soup or something like that. Right. Uh, really developing like a master brand with Seth has been some of the most exciting times right now. It's uh, you know, and, 
and really making you know uh, these delicious snacks has been great. I'm seeing more and more chef pivot pivot that way. I mean, unfortunately, our 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 industry is going to take a massive hit of closures, and there's going to be a lot of unemployment happening, uh, and uh, there's going to be chefs that are going to be completely pivoting their careers and in one way or another, right? Uh, and uh, I have seen, like, Stephanie Izzard, for instance, she, she, she's been getting into CPG with, like, her signature sauces and so forth. And, you know, and a lot of other big-name chefs have, have had, like, a sauce line or, or you know, uh, you know with, uh, with cookbooks. But I think what I'm doing is a little bit diff- a little di- different, right? It's not really, um, you know, a lot of those products usually represent the restaurant that that chef has. Uh, and Eat the Change is completely different. I mean, Eat the Change is is, is a rallying cry uh, to 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 vote uh, with your appetite, basically, right? The the thought process is is like, you know, there's this thing called eco anxiety that people are are feeling right now a, a lot in the world, and you know, it's not too tangible for people on to, on how like for how how for, for them on how to make a difference basically so you can vote every four years or every two years if you're lucky and, and you're in the know but every day you get to vote with your appetite right and uh three at least three times a day and if you snack maybe you know a, a bunch more so the the idea is to have a master brand that really help climate change be tangible that you feel when you're spending your money on your appetite you're actually making a difference and one of the cool things about eat the change is it's it, we're also encompassing biodiversity within the company so when we started with the conception of jerky as you know mike you were there with us we started with a really high level recipe that included any ingredient i want to use like molasses and soy and all these things and as we started going through the company we decided to eliminate the top six crops uh, that are cultivated, right? So no wheat, no soy, uh, um, you know, uh, uh, no coconut, no refined sugars, uh, no rice. So when you take all those ingredients out, it becomes a lot more difficult for a chef to, to make something taste delicious. So that was my little challenge, but, but, uh, but it's going really well and, and we're, we're happy with the product we have. So. Yeah, that's a really interesting anecdote. And it's kind of a question I asked Ellie Truesdell, who was on the podcast, uh, maybe about a month ago, but she was in 2016. She was on a, a panel interview organized by the New York Times, where renowned chef Dan Barber, I'm not sure um, if you know, Dan, but he spoke about how other global cultures have created their own food culture out of necessity. So for example, in Japan, it is a rice culture, but they require buckwheat as a rotation crop and they create soba noodles, which has very much become part of the country's diet and identity or in, in South America, the combination of corn and beans. However, in North America, you know, we've largely had a monoculture type agricultural system because the subsidies from the government have been there to for the top five crops, the wheat, the soy, um, et cetera. And so as a result, you know, we've been or not as a result, but we've largely been a, a wealthier society that didn't have to do cover crops, but now we're having soil fertility issues and, and overabundance. So all that said, how would you describe North America's food culture? And obviously you're somebody that's trying to redefine it and shape that with, you know, your work in restaurants and with Seth that eat the change, you know, how do you kind of view food culture in the United States right now? Well, it's definitely a melting pot of food culture. Uh, but, you know, I think America has gone through these phases in their history 
that really have reflected what our food culture is. Um, you know, like the other countries and many more that, that, that you mentioned, where food has been at the base of the culture, right? And, and, and really everything has been at the center, center table. Um, in the States, it always felt like it came business first, then food. Right. And it was always kind of the other way around everywhere else. So, for instance, just to, you know, and I don't want to dive too deep in this because this could be a whole other podcast, but like during the war, right, when, you know, the uh, World War One and Two, you know, the name of the game was who can get like supplies, food and gas to the troops as fast as possible had the better chance of winning. Right. And that's kind of when food in the States really became industrialized, canned and 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 really mass produced and when all those countries you know after the war was over when all those countries were just you know that that had been invented just to supply uh, they had to pivot and make them into consumer goods right so that's kind of what really affected our farm bill right just like uh, you know the uh, you know senior butts which had passed the uh, the high fructose syrup corn bill so the you know so it, i feel like it's just always been a little bit about like America's progression and food always became part of that, right? And the, the other cool thing about the United States is is that we have a very we have a, a, a thing called conflict cuisine, right? Where it's you know obviously we're made up of so many different cultures and backgrounds. So for instance, a lot of those uh, the, those neighborhoods and those groups of people they rely on their their cuisine in their local neighborhoods to really kind of amplify who they are or to give them that comfort zone of being home still, right? That's kind of what they rely on is developing that local cuisine or that local market. So to me, that's kind of what the food of America is. It's very, it's very, um, you know, it's, 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 it's also almost sometimes feels it's business first, then, then, you know, food important, uh, the importance of food afterwards, but mixed within that, we have a melting pot of conflict cuisine, right? So, you know, it's just, and again, our, our fast food nation, when you look at, you know, a lot of people would refer to us as a, as a fast food nation, which is, I don't really love hearing, but there's a lot of truth behind that as well, right? So, um, you know, I think we're just, we're in dire need of some balance. So I think that's why we're seeing plant-based foods be on such a rise in the U.S. right now. Even before this pandemic happened, you started seeing the data just really skyrocket up on, on plant-based stuff. And now since the pandemic, you even seen those numbers kind of double down so it's kind of we're 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 in a, a massive shift in the food system in the united states and it's not only about what we like to eat it's really about how we farm it how we supply it how we transfer it how we package it it goes it's all these different things we're looking at and i think there's a universal shift happening uh with the food system right now so yeah thanks for sharing that that's a really interesting anecdote and insight um I'm curious as kind of a follow-up. So you were appointed by the mayor of Washington, D.C. as the chair of the D.C. Food Policy Council. And I'm curious, is that what sort of brought to light some of these issues for you? Or, or what were some of the structural issues in the food system that came to light, you know, during your time overseeing this? Yeah, absolutely. So, so you know, first of all, locally is different from it international, right? So I've been involved with a lot of international food aid with care and, and travel to countries and really, you know, uh, educated uh, groups of people on crop rotation and, and so forth. But when it becomes local, uh, what happens is, is that you have this, these, this, these community leaders, right? These, these uh, uh, you know, these people are part of the community 
their, their voice, the community's voice. Then you have um, the leadership, the, 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 the policy uh, leadership, uh, and then you have the government. And most oftentimes, those three groups of people aren't talking together, and they're not on the same agenda. They're separated, and you don't have effective change. So the thing about the D.C. Food Policy Council, when uh, Mayor Bowser uh, proposed it uh, about three years ago, was that, that we have this piece of legislation, really, that would act kind of like an umbrella, and it would house the government, it would house the community, the community and house the, the, the policymakers, right? Like the Food Policy Council uh, director. Um, so now really what's been really amazing is, is to see all of these three groups being at the same meetings, talking together, being on the same agenda and working towards bettering the local uh, food environment. And what that really means is we have to break down some of these hurdles and write legislation to improve our food system. And uh, right now we really concentrate on sustainable agriculture, urban farming, small businesses, uh, and of course the largest one is, is uh, food equity uh, and education. Um, so you know, by covering those four bases and having all those three parties on the same page and talk together, that's how we've seen uh, ourselves get more effective change, get better grants, get better opportunities for people in in uh in uh, food desert uh, zones uh, and so forth so it's proven itself to work really well uh, there are an abundance of food policy councils opening up at a rapid pace across the united states la la uh, uh, food policy council has a, a tremendous one and a great website they really concentrated on on um on uh, uh, school lunches and, and reinventing the school lunch program uh, which a lot of the rest of us are kind of taking bits and pieces from and, and owning them ourselves. So that's kind of the, the cool thing about it is now we have food policy councils all across the United States that get to like meet every once or twice a year and share all their successes or, or, we're not, or what's not working, right? Because every, every city or area that has a different food economy, so it's kind of, you can't just write this one large piece of legislation that accounts for everybody's agri agricultural needs. So um, I think the Food Policy Council is, is the way to go. So I'm just happy to be part of it and, and uh, uh, being able to do my part there. So Very cool. Um, I, wanted, I wanted to switch gears a little bit and maybe go into more of a, a rapid fire section with some questions about your, your time with restaurants. Is that, can we do that? Yeah, that sounds fun. Absolutely. Sure. So what, it, what is a change that, that COVID has had on restaurants, whether it's, you know, putting plexiglass between, um, you know, booths to how food is ordered to the takeout model? What's something that you think will, will fundamentally change with restaurants? And what's something that as soon as, you know, we find a vaccine and there's safe ways for us to go back to sort of more normal life, you know, restaurants can't wait to get rid of that policy? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think, great question. Uh, and, and there's so much to unpack here because there's so much going on and people are doing so many different things. But I think one thing I think for sure that everyone's realized right now is online ordering, right, um, has become a big thing and curbside pickup. Um, so making sure we have efficiencies and the right type of programs that can deliver that. Uh, but alternatively, actually, and this is where I feel Uber Eats and maybe uh, uh, these other uh, third-party delivery systems are going to find themselves in trouble, is that beforehand, online uh, deliveries and, and 
it was just at, like you always looked at it as like the cream of the crop, you know, uh, like just extra dollars coming into the restaurant, right? You really didn't account for it. To, you never based your business off of it, your business model off of it. Mm-hmm. Um, and for the, to have and that thought process, you always gave up thirty percent of your sales, right? These third party deliveries take an absorbent amount of money on that delivery, which almost leaves you with nothing on a bottom line you're already struggling on, right? But you always kind of like through marketing. You're like, oh, well, it's marketing the restaurant. It's getting more people there. Now, restaurants are relying on that food sale, that delivery, and that curbside pickup, and that 30% is killing us, right? So you're seeing a lot of uh, local states change legislation or or limit the percentage that uh, Uber Eats can kind of charge you. And I think that one is, is something that's going to really stay and stick. Uh, uh, but... In general, I'm very much an optimist when it comes to the world. And, and I think when the time's right and when we have the right vaccine, I think humans will go back to their same eating habits uh, and, and, and celebrating food in the way we've, we've had for years and years and years and years. This isn't the first pandemic to hit this country or this world, right? And we're just in a moment right now. And I think or having knee-jerk reactions, or seeing a, you know a tremendous people, a families lose lose their loved ones and, and and deaths, and it's just kind of like it's just freaking everybody out, right? But I think after we get through this 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 weird time, I think we're going to go back to enjoying to go out to eat and enjoying being around people and sitting across the table from someone and having a great conversation and going in a restaurant and having service and not seeing servers wear masks and bartenders wear masks and uh, you know, I think we're 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 just not that type of country. So uh, I'm looking forward to, to kind of climbing it out of that with everybody. And and uh, when the time's right, it'll make sense. Um, but I'm I'm pretty you know optimistic that we will get there. I wholeheartedly agree, and very much hope that's the that's the case. Yeah. Um, you're a graduate of the Culinary Institute of America. It would if you were going back to 20 year old Chef Spike. Would you go do that, or would you do something else to hone your hone your craft? Uh, great question. I would. I would do. I, I wouldn't change anything I did. Um, you know, I, I was one of the lucky ones. I grew up in a restaurant family, so I had a really great base of a you know uh, a taste of what it's like to, to work in a kitchen and have to wash dishes, and and knew that you know, the restaurant business wasn't really like this, this glorified business, right. At, at the back of the house. And I think a lot of people, you know, when they go out to dinner, they, they, you know, they, they fall in love with this business for the, the wrong reasons. Um, so, so for me, it was really, it was really, uh, uh, important to, you know, I needed to go to culinary school to just have some type of experience of going to some type of college, right. I wasn't you know, I was a high school dropout and I didn't go to any big 10 college or real college. I went to culinary school. I went to a craft school. So for me, uh, the thing about culinary school that, that, uh, did me wonders was I finally figured out that I had actually an actual talent and that I was, was good at something. I, I, before I was kind of struggling on where I wanted to go with my life, but I took for granted all this experience that I had had in the kitchen because my parents forced me to work in the restaurants. Right. And I didn't really know that that was like a, a, a talent worth bottling. Right. But as soon as I got to culinary school and I went to my first classes, you know, I was, I was, you know, knew all the sauces. I knew a lot more techniques than anyone. And I was really inspired. So that was my personal journey 
but people that are looking to get into the business, I always tell a couple things before, you know, spending a ton of money on culinary school, at least go work at a restaurant for a year and get to know the business a little bit. That's, that's my biggest, my biggest tip to everyone. Like go get a job at one of your favorite restaurants, wash dishes, work the salad station, work the front of the house, work the back of the house, get involved, see what it's really like. And it, if you really love it after you've been through that, because it really is a subculture, then start to plan culinary school um, and not the other way around. I, I see far too many people kind of spend money on, on culinary school and then, and then uh, just, you know, find, find out that the business really isn't for them. So. Mm-hmm. You know, that's great advice. Um, so you've worked with some of the, you know, most famous chefs in the world, the Thomas Kellers, who's a chef that you look up to and garner culinary inspiration from? Yeah. So, uh, you know, I, I have so many, uh, you know, I, I loved working for Thomas Keller and, 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 and think he was great, but, you know, I find myself find, uh, drawing a lot less inspiration from, from him. I mean, he's a great chef, but, but um, I've, I, I find myself really always kind of resorting back to my French chef. I had, I had an apprenticeship in, in the North of France for about a year. I worked for a chef called Gerard Boyer over there. And uh, he was a three Michelin star chef. And I really think that experience is kind of what set the standard for the rest of my life. Uh, just working in that kitchen, it was so intense. Uh, so I think I carry that throughout my life. And then there's this crazy chef that breaks all the rules of the restaurant industry that I worked for for years called Michael Bao. He's, he's in Vietnam now. Uh, and um, he really took me on, on a culinary tour of Vietnam and taught me uh, his authentic mother's cuisine. And we opened up restaurants in New York city and introduced me to all, you know, Vietnam and all the exotic ingredients and flavors. Uh, and, um, and that's a chef I always kind of, you know, always kind of resort to and, you know, think about every once in a while. So, uh, and then, uh, then like in my life now, like guys like Jose Andreas, you know, and, and, uh, you know, which does amazing stuff with world center kitchen and amazing opens up amazing restaurants. You have guys like, uh, Michelle Nishan, uh, which is uh, a policy chef, you know, uh, that, that's fantastic. So, you know, I try to draw inspiration from, from, from my surroundings and everyone. So. so you're probably one of the few chefs that have actually cooked for active presidents. So you created the Prez Obama burger in honor of Barack Obama's 2009 inauguration celebration. What was on the burger? Yes. Yeah, so we, uh, you know, when we came out with the Prez Obama burger, it was actually a campaign between the McCain burger and the Prez Obama burger. Uh, and every time you ordered one or the other, you basically casted a vote for that president. And every day we would post the votes on the front door on Capitol Hill. And it got, you know, and for, with all the people involved in policy in D.C., it became really exciting and competitive. Uh, so we decided to to uh, base the burger combination on the character of the candidate. So we thought at that time, and still is obviously Obama was a very well-balanced candidate that had a little bit of everything. And when he needed to get like a little bit, you know, you know, uh, you know, get a little rough, he could. So we did a, a very well-balanced burger that was red onion marmalade, uh, uh, applewood smoked bacon. Um, it had a, uh, these uh, blue cheese and a horseradish uh, mayo sauce on it, and it's it very decadent and and classy and 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 just well rounded. And then the McCain burger was like a little bit more uh, Tex Mex, if you will. It had the corn salsa, had the, the 
aggressive Chipotle. And I don't know if you remember his campaign, but it was a little rough around the edges. And, and uh, <laughs> so that's kind of what we did. And it was funny, people, you know, Democrats would come in and order the Obama burger. But if they wanted to taste the McCain burger, they would order the Obama burger so they would get that vote. And then they would sub McCain toppings on it. Uh, just to try the different burger if they were regular. So you had all sorts of stuff like that happening at the cash register, which made for a really fun campaign for the restaurant. So very cool. You also made subsequently made the Michelle melt. What was that? Yes, the Michelle melt. Well, you know, I didn't know after what we had done with the burgers that the president and the first family would uh, essentially be visiting our restaurants throughout their administration with their, their kids. And, and they invited us to the White House. Michelle Obama may be part of her initiative. So once I started getting very involved with Michelle, she said, hey, how come you have a, you know, she literally told me, she's like, how come you have a burger for my husband? But I, I don't get anything. So I said, Michelle, I got you. So we made a, uh, uh, a turkey burger, right, which had a, obviously a lot less fat in it. Um, and we served it on a multi-grain bun. And then we used uh, inspiration from her White House garden on all the herbs, and we made a, a White House uh, herb aioli, uh, basically. And, and uh, that was kind of the burger with a little bit of a Swiss cheese and, and, uh, and a tomato, and, and that was the burger. Very cool. Very cool. Uh, I think we have time for three, three last questions, one more, one more food-specific. So you started a pizza joint in New York City. or Sorry, you started a pizza joint called We the Pizza after studying the art of pizza making in New York city, what have you learned to be the, you know, the secret sauce of creating the perfect pizza? Or can you not tell us because that's your, that's what's <laughs> <Yeah>. like. <laughs> Absolutely. I'll give you my tricks. I mean, you know, there's, um, I, I did, you know, I, I, when I was working in New York city, I call myself a professional in New York pizza. Cause, uh, you know, we would eat 99 cents pizza and drink beers almost every night after our shifts the only thing that was open uh and you know new york slice really it holds steady and and it's thin and crispy and and you always get a little oil running down your uh you know your your, uh, your wrist there so it's always pretty pretty uh, well balanced pizza so for us um you know the secret for me is a bread dough we really use a bread dough and and our crust is a little bit thicker than a new york style because it's bread but it's just as crispy and it holds up and I personally got some really great tips from this website and book called Encyclo Pizza. And for anyone that's listening to this, that's interested in developing their own pizza dough, uh, that, that is basically, you know, um, recommend them to do. So, okay. Very cool. What's the most underrated pizza ingredient? Obviously there's traditionalists, but if you're, you know, putting your chef hat on, what's something you've experimented with? Most underrated pizza ingredient is an anchovy. I think there's an aversion to anchovies, but people don't realize if I just snuck, you would not know if I snuck anchovy into your pizza or not. And you'd think it was the most delicious pizza. So anchovies. Okay. Awesome. Um, second last question. So you're somebody that lives and breathes food all day, every day. You cook for people, you build restaurants, you build food concepts. When the business of food sometimes gets in the way, What's your favorite way to reconnect with food on a personal level? Well, great question. Uh, when food gets in the way, well, you know, if I'm able to travel uh, and 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 go somewhere uh, that I haven't been to and explore that food culture, that's always one way I get to connect. And then a lot of the times, I, I you know, there's a farm. I have a, a buddy that owns a sustainable farm not too far from me, and uh, I always love grabbing my 
my uh, my four year old Ace and and going out to the farm and and picking picking stuff right off you know right off the uh, you know just harvesting stuff right off the farm and and cooking it right away always lets me kind of reconnect and and get away from the the business of it. So fantastic. So final question: Where can people? find you and follow you online and if they're you know once once the border opens up what cities can we find a restaurant of yours in <laughs> absolutely so when the borders open back up you can definitely find all my restaurants in the dmv which we refer to as the district of columbia which includes maryland and virginia uh we just opened up uh uh you know, plant burgers all across this area so please visit visit us at wwplnt burger.com to check us out there and our locations and what our menus are. I also have this fantastic, healthy, conscious restaurant in a, in a, a sports facility called the St. James in Virginia. Uh, and that restaurant's called Vim and Victor. And we uh, concentrate on healthy-ish food there. You can find anything from a great burger to an acai bowl to a wellness latte uh, to, to really great plant-based options as well. Uh, obviously my, my, uh, tried and true restaurants on Capitol Hill with my family, uh, is good stuff eatery, which is a burger joint. We, the pizza, which we just ch- chatted about, uh, and Santa Rosa Taqueria. And all those are actually on Capitol Hill. So if you're anywhere within the mall area or the Capitol or by the white house, you just go up Pennsylvania Avenue and, and you can find all three restaurants in the row, uh, on a block there. Uh, and then if you want to find out more about what I'm up to and my concepts and what we're doing with Eat the Change, you can visit uh, my website, which is uh, www.spikethechef.com. Uh, and then otherwise, you can follow me on Instagram at Spike the Chef or on Twitter at Chef Spike. Uh, and uh, please follow at Plant Your Vote Challenge. It's the coolest thing right now, a bunch of recipes. So I know I just gave you a lot of where you could find me, but hopefully uh, you know one or, one or two of those things kind of resonate with you and when you're in the area, uh, you can come check us out. Chef Spike, you're a man on the mission. I appreciate you taking the time today. Uh, so much. Thank you for having me. And, and uh, I've been looking forward to, to doing this. So thank you for you know uh, getting this on the books together. So, You bet. Thanks, Spike.